Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? You guys doing all right? When I'm holding this right here, what do you think about right away? Going to the movies, right? Number one movie in the history of the world opening this weekend. You're going to read about it if you haven't already. Now, the Bible has something to say about this. It says that in the latter times, in the times that you and I are living in, people will rather hear myths, stories, things that are made up than they would rather hear the truth, okay? Uh, People are more into something that is fiction than something that can actually change their life every single day. And so one of the things that we need to understand is what we do here at church is, is not about stories, it's about the truth, and we need to make that clear because in our culture, the lines have been blurred. We got a lot of churches who do entire series of sermons based on the latest stories that are coming out in movies. We got pastors who fill their sermons with a bunch of personal stories. What you don't need is more stories in your life. You need the truth of God's word in your life. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? This is why we gather here this morning to get into the truth of God's word. Now, our church has an exciting opportunity coming up here in the month of May that's going to start this week. We're reading through the entire New Testament together, and we're going to read four of the most practical books of truth that God has for us. We're going to start Galatians this week. Then the next week's going to be Ephesians. Some of you might remember we went through last year. Then we're going to get to Philippians. Then we're going to get to Colossians. So every week, there's going to be a new book of truth that you and I can read together. Not very long, six chapters, four chapters. I want to strongly encourage you, whether you've been reading through the scripture of the day with us or not, that you need to read Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians with your church family this month. You need to get the truth in your life. And if you have a hard time remembering that, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Go eat popcorn. That's a great way to remember it right there, everybody. G-E-P-C, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Some of you are getting it right now. It's coming in. You're like, oh, that's why he was holding that up that whole time. See what he did there. Hey, let's just to get you inspired, let's open up to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Let's go right now to the theme verse of this book and start to give you the thought behind the book so that you can go and just invest yourself in the truth of this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the churches that are of Galatia. Galatia being a whole region there. So this is written to multiple churches. And there's a main verse that we want to get to, but we want to get the context here in Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 21. This is page 973. If you got one of our Bibles coming in here this morning, page 973, and out of respect for God's word, I'm going to ask if everyone would stand up for our scripture reading here this morning, and this is the truth of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, and this is what you and I need to hear, we need to have our eyes open to see it, and we need to apply it to our lives, so please follow along as I read, let's give this our full and undivided attention right now. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas 
came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That ends the reading of God's word. Please go ahead and have a seat. And maybe you've heard this verse that we want to zero in on, zoom in on here. Uh, Galatians 2.20, maybe you're familiar with that verse. But do you know the whole context of what's going on here in Galatians 2? Here in Galatians 2, you can see in verse 11 that there's this man, Cephas, who came to Antioch. Anybody know who Cephas is? What's, how do we know him? His name is Peter, right? Peter comes to Antioch. That's the church that sent out Barnabas and Paul on their missionary journey. And so Peter comes to visit from Jerusalem, and there he is. And the church there in Antioch, it's a mix of people who are Jews that have been saved and people who are Gentiles who have been saved, and they're all fellowshipping together. But then these Jews come from Jerusalem, and when they come, Paul notices Peter begins to act differently. He's not interacting with the Gentiles in the same way. He's not eating things in the same way. He's acting like there's a difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, and there's certain things that Jews are supposed to do that the Gentiles aren't doing. And so this distance, and he even sees his his spiritual mentor, Barnabas, the guy who really brought Paul in and encouraged him. He even sees Barnabas start to act differently when these Jews show up. And so here he is now publicly calling Peter out. Did you know that this happened, that the Apostle Paul felt like he needed to confront Peter? We're talking about Peter, that disciple of Jesus, that apostle who preached the first sermon of the church in Acts 2, the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That guy, Paul felt like he had to go to him and say, hey, you're not living in the truth of the gospel. 
Man, how come your behavior changes based on who you're around? You're here with us. Everything's great. These Jews show up, and you start to distance yourselves from the Gentiles, and you start to go back like people are unclean and foods are unclean, and we've got this whole law that we have to keep in this legalistic kind of way. You start going back to that. That's why in verse 16, he makes the point here from the Department of Redundancy Department. Look at this verse here in verse 16. I mean, this is what you call trying to make a point. He he says, we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Then he says it again, and he says it again. There's the works of the law, and no one is justified. So justified is a key word that Paul uses in Galatians. You're going to see it if you read through the book. He used it also in Romans. Justified means to be declared righteous. And maybe a helpful way for you to remember what justified means, justified is the opposite of condemned, okay? So if you're condemned, you're guilty. If you're justified, then you're not guilty. That's what it means. You've been declared not guilty of sin by God in heaven. That's what it means to be justified. And he's making it very clear here in verse 16. There's nothing that you and I can do. God gave us his law. If we try to do good works and keep the law, that doesn't declare anyone to be righteous. No one is found not guilty in heaven because they're trying to do the right thing here on earth. No, you're not saved by works of the law. You're saved by your faith in Jesus Christ because he's the only one who perfectly lived a righteous life and then he died in your place. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Okay. So we don't believe that you should try to do good things to get to heaven. We don't believe there are good people out there doing good things and we don't believe that God grades on a curve and he lets people who do good works into heaven. That might surprise a lot of our uh, unbelieving neighbors and family members. They think the Bible's just a book of rules. Actually, here we have a book in the Bible telling us it's not by keeping the rules that anybody gets saved. It's based on what Jesus has done. That's our salvation. And he says this over and over again to make it clear. So I don't think he's saying that Peter's not saved. I don't think he's saying that Barnabas isn't saved. I think he's calling out his saved brothers, and he's saying, hey, you know that we're only saved by what Jesus has done. Why are you starting to act like there's a bunch of things we've got to do when these Jews show up? He's calling them out, saying, hey, Christianity cannot become a list of things that you and I are supposed to do. That's not how we got started in it. That's not what it should be for us as Christians. It's not about the works of the law. It's about faith. That's how we're supposed to live, by faith in Jesus. That's not just how you get saved. That's the whole Christian life. And it's in this context where he's confronting Peter and trying to make it very clear that he drops a gem on us here in verse 20. And let's just go through it. We're going to go through it line by line. It's three different sentences in our English translation here. And I want you to think through the deep meaning of every single one of these sentences. So we're not going for a quantity of material here in this sermon this morning. We want you to memorize this verse. We want you to meditate on this verse every day this week. We want you to really think through the implications in your life of what Paul says here about what it means to live by faith. And he says in verse 20, first sentence, 
Uh, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, we got to get to the depth of what does that mean? That we have died with Jesus on the cross. Crucified is the way of Jesus dying on the cross there. Okay, so we've died with Jesus. Then the second sentence here, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, wow, what does that mean? We're going to get to that. Then look at the third sentence. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay. So what he's doing is he's taking everything that we just celebrated, everything that we know happened in the past. We think the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We just had Good Friday. That Jesus rose again from the dead. We just had Easter to celebrate his victory over sin, over death, over Satan, over the demons. We're celebrating Jesus. Now what he's doing is he's saying that actually is not just stuff I believe happened in the past. That stuff I'm living by faith in in the present. So if you're taking notes, we're going to build a little chart here today. And what we're going to do is we're going to match the past facts of the gospel with present faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, We're going to match past facts with present faith. This is so important that you, that you train yourself, that you get taught by the scripture, by what Paul says here in this verse, that you train yourself how to think this way, okay? Because notice what he says here in this last phrase, and let's just start with the third sentence. We'll dive into that one first. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, the life I'm living right now in this physical body, this physical life that we're experiencing here together, I live this life by faith in the Son of God. And then he says two things about Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. So he says, I'm living right now in this present moment, in this present body, I'm living by faith. So he's not talking about faith as something we had in the past tense. He's talking about a present faith that determines how he lives today. What I hear is I hear a lot of Christian people saying, I have faith. And what they mean by that is they believe in the past works of Jesus and and they'll celebrate those and they think those really happened. But what we need to see is believing in the past acts of Jesus is not what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, how does what Jesus has already done determine what you do now in the present? So this is something that you've got to make sure, a way that you're thinking. This has become built in to your brain. You have it in your heart. You take what Jesus has done in the past, and it fuels your faith now in the present. So we're not just talking about people who have faith here in this passage. We're talking about people who live by faith. Let's get specific into what what it says here. It says at the end, and I want to begin with this because this is the foundation of everything. He says, he loved me and gave himself for me. We saw that when Jesus cried out to Telestai, it is finished, right before he bowed his head and gave up his spirit and took his last breath. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And we looked at this just a couple weeks ago. 
when we started this done series here at the church, we looked at how Jesus, when he said it is finished, what did he finish? One of the things he finished is he loved you to the end. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus loved you and wanted to make you one of his friends and wanted you to be adopted by the love of our Father in heaven as his sons and daughters. You could not be more fully loved than you have been by Jesus when he died for you on the cross. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? Do we, we still believe that? It says he loved you. And he also, it says, gave himself for you. Oh, he talked about that, the sacrifice of Jesus. His perfectly righteous blood was shed. He offered his body as that spotless lamb. And what he did is he paid in full the penalty of your sin. He atoned for what you have done wrong before God. So let's get this down. For point number one, under past facts, that what he says here at the end of this verse is he says, you are fully loved and your sin is paid in full. These are the past facts. This is what has already been done by Jesus, that he loved you completely and he paid for your sin in full. He ransomed your soul. Now, here's the problem. You might say, yeah, I know about these things. Yeah, I believe these things. I've heard these things. I find a lot of Christian people, they're familiar with the gospel of Jesus, and they take on this kind of been there, done that mentality. That's not what Paul is doing here in this verse. He's saying, I live by faith in the Son of God. I have a faith in Jesus that's driving my life forward, and here's what it's built on. I'm perfectly loved, and my sin has been paid in full. So let's get this down for our present faith. Everything you do is because Jesus has done. That's how we're supposed to think about Christianity. We are now just responding to the reality that Jesus loves us and he paid for our sin. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is a response to Jesus dying for your soul, okay? So everything you do in the Christian life, is all a response to two realities that should be in your mind regularly. Jesus loves you fully, and he paid your sin in full. And as you think about those things, you live your life by faith, trusting that that is true in the present moment. That's how it is. Now, here's what I see. Here's what some of us here in this room this morning do every single week is we make Christianity a bunch of things we have to go do this week. It's like we turn it into a list of chores. Supposed to read my Bible. Supposed to pray. Supposed to go to church. Now I'm supposed to go to a fellowship group and have a partner, according to Pastor Daniel here this morning, right? And you just start adding up, supposed to love my wife, supposed to lead my kids, supposed to pay my taxes, supposed to go to work. And it becomes a whole list of things that you have to do. And if Paul was here, he'd be calling you out today. He'd be saying, did you get saved by the works of the law? Then why are you making your Christian life a bunch of things to do? It's not about anything that you do. It's about what Jesus Christ has already done. Man, what a burden it is to have a to-do list. I do not like to-do lists. Now, you guys can give me an amen on this one, right? I mean, I'm not a big fan of email. You know what I mean? Just an inbox, right? I mean, if if it's people reaching out to me in a personal way, praise the Lord. But it's all of these things that find their way into the email. 
just becomes a list of things you got to go through and check. The good news of Christianity is Jesus has already done your to-do list. He's established perfect righteousness. You're living in the overflow. You're living in the abundance of grace. You should walk into this week like everything that needs to happen is already done. You're fully loved. You should walk up like every bill has already been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's been paid in full. That's what you should be walking around thinking. Is that what it sounds like? Is that what the impression we're giving to the world around us? Is that the feeling we have in our own hearts? That I'm just living totally loved and totally paid for by Jesus. And everything here now is bonus time. Is that how we're living? Or are we just walking around burdened people? Like we got so much we're supposed to go do. And we don't even really have the heart to go do it. Because we're thinking about what we have to do. Rather than what Jesus has already done. Look, at he addresses it right here in Galatians 3.1, and he's not just calling out Peter here. He, he's calling out the whole Galatians, multiple churches. He knows this is, a, this is a problem common to Christian people. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? Okay, so did you get your new life? your new heart, uh, the Spirit coming in and living in you now. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let's answer that question here at our church this morning. Did you get saved by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which one? Hearing with faith. Look what he says then. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And how many Christian people here this morning in this room right now would say, oh, I got saved based on nothing that I have done. It's all based on Jesus. But then we're going to go live this week like I've got a bunch of things I've got to go do. He's saying, are you so foolish? Who bewitched you? Who gave you that thought? Who put that, that thought and incepted it into your brain? How did you, who saw Jesus pay it all for you, who saw the perfect fulfillment of love there on the cross, how did you make it again a list of things to do as if you could actually go and even do them? Why are you starting to go back to shouldn't hang out with this, shouldn't eat this, shouldn't go there? Why are you going back to rules and regulations when it's already been done, Galatians? That's what he's saying here in this book. That's what he's saying to all of us here this morning. See, this is the problem when we start thinking about stories. And because we live in a story culture, let's get the popcorn back out here, all right? Because we're used to stories. Now, the, the movie that's coming out that's going to be the most seen movie in the history uh, of, of cinema and the history of movies, it's actually the culmination of 22 different superhero movies. Has anybody ever seen a superhero movie before? Have you ever seen a Spider-Man, uh, something like that? They basically all have the same plot, right? Bad guy rises up. Good guy has powers. Somebody loves somebody. Good guy wins in the end, right? Right? Why do they have to make 22 of these movies all leaving to a climax in this one. Here's why, okay? Here, here's why, and trust me, okay? I'm not going to spoil the movie for anybody, all right? I saw a pastor on Facebook who put up a spoiler of the movie on his Facebook, and I was like, bro, I don't think that's the way to reach people for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, nobody, nobody likes it when a movie gets spoiled. You know what I'm saying? 
You ever been sitting down? I don't know if you had any obnoxious little brothers growing up, or I don't know what it was like at your house. But you're sitting down, and you're like, oh, this should be a good story. I'm excited. Maybe you got your popcorn, you got your snack, you're in your comfortable chair. You know what I'm talking about. It's story time, right? The lights are turned down low. Let's see what this movie's all about. And then you got this blabbermouth person watching the movie with you, and they want to let you know that they know what's going to happen. Not in like the cool, I'm anticipating it, you know, and I'm kind of figuring it out. Not that cool way, but like they've already seen it, and they're spoiling it. Does that make anybody mad? Anybody else here? Get a little, and you're getting angry right now just thinking about it, right? Because here's the thing. Why, why do we need 22 movies in this cinematic universe that they're making? Because here's why. Once you've heard a story, you're like, oh, yeah, I already know that story. Hey, you want to watch that movie tonight? I've already seen that one. See, that's how stories work. Like, I could spoil it for you. If I tell you what happens in the story, see, it loses that excitement because you think, I already know it. I already know what happens. It's not that interesting. The gospel is not a story that you can already know. The gospel is truth that defines your life. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. And we got way too many Christian people acting like Jesus dying on the cross and rising again is a movie they've already seen, and they're waiting for some other story. This is your story. This defines who you are. You live every day like Jesus died yesterday, like he rose this morning, and he's coming back tomorrow. It defines you. It's your present condition. And if, you're, if you've gotten so familiar with the story of Jesus that you're having this been there, done that, already know about it, you're telling me that right now you're living by faith, you're walking around every morning thinking I'm fully loved, I, my sin has been paid in full, and I'm just living based on what Jesus has done? See, it's the way we think right now. That's the difference between the truth and a story. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 2, and you'll see that even though he got called out by Paul here in Galatians, he knew about this. He wrote about it in his letter here. 1 Peter 2.24 is another excellent verse of Scripture that gives us this same concept, that the past facts of the gospel of what Jesus has done should stimulate faith in what we're going to do today, that we are living in the overflow of, of the work of Jesus Christ, not trying to do works ourselves. The works that we do, they come from this response because this is how it works. We love him because he first loved us. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if I'm thinking about how Jesus loves me, and that's creating in my heart this passion to love him, will I end up doing what Jesus wants me to do? Totally. Will it seem like a list of chores? Or will it seem like I love Jesus Christ? See, some of us, we spend too much time thinking about the to-do list that's already been done by Jesus rather than thinking about the love that we have. And look what he says here in 1 Peter 2, 24. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He already carried our burden on that cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. See, hey, Jesus, he already bore our sins in his body on the tree, so here's what we can do now. 
that we would live dead to sin, that we would live to righteousness, that we would experience a healing because all of our sin has already been paid in full. It's been forgiven. It's been forgotten. We've been cleansed of it. Jesus already bore it for us. We can experience the healing, the salvation, the freedom from sin, the freedom from being burdened by trying to be good enough to measure up to a standard we can never achieve on our own when Jesus already perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of God and gave it freely to us. So I got to ask you, even my Christian brothers and sisters, I got to ask you, are you living like Christianity is works of the law and things we got to do? Or are you living by faith in the Son of God and what he's already done? And I'm not asking if you have faith. I'm asking, do you live by faith? Is this going to make a difference on Tuesday morning? Is the gospel of Jesus going to be what you're thinking about on Thursday afternoon? Now go back to Galatians 2.20. Uh, because this, this active thinking about the gospel is maybe something you haven't been trained to do, something you haven't seen in the scripture. Maybe you have this idea even, but you don't really have it built in to where now it's the way of thinking day in and day out. So don't just say, hey, I believe in the gospel as something that happened. No, I believe in the gospel and its present implications in my life. And these other sentences make it very clear what those implications of the gospel are in the present, what should be fueling our faith that we live by. Look at the first sentence of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, so crucifixion is the process of killing someone, executing someone on the cross. But crucifixion was more than just killing someone. It was a way to torture someone, to make them suffer as much physical pain as they could, nailing them in their hands and their feet to the wood so they would have to lift themselves up to keep on breathing. So even though they're experiencing this tremendous pain of having their body nailed to this wood, they're still just trying to grasp breath as they keep lifting themselves up this was just the worst possible way to die crucifixion and it's saying that you have been crucified with christ so let's think this through the past facts are this the past fact jesus died on the cross let's get this down for number two this is the past fact this is what people would say they believe as a christian oh i know jesus died for me i know all about that i've known that a long time Okay, well, here's the present faith. Here's what we should live by then. You are dead to sin. You have been crucified with Christ. When Jesus died for your sin, you have died in Christ to your sin. Okay, so those are two different thoughts. Anybody can agree. Yeah, I think Jesus died on the cross. But can they agree that I have died with Christ, that me, in my soul, I no longer live to the power of sin. I no longer live as a slave of sin. I've died to that sin. That's no longer who I am. That doesn't have power over me anymore. Is that what we're saying? That's what he means here. 
I have been crucified with Christ. I see myself in the death of Jesus. He died for my sin. I'm now dead to sin. Go to Romans chapter 6. A few books back to the left here. Romans 6. Maybe you remember this from when we read about it on Scripture of the day. But he writes here in Romans 6, and he dives deep into this thought because he wants us to live in the thought, to live by faith that we really have died to sin. And so he gets into the details of it here in Romans chapter 6. He really expounds on that one line, I have been crucified with Christ. And he says, look at verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, now this is our sinful nature that we were born in, Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to, what does it say there? The body of sin might be brought to what? Nothing. Now, is that really how you're thinking? Like when you wake up and you don't feel, you're not feeling the love of Jesus Christ. You're not thinking your sin is paid for. Maybe you're waking up, you're feeling tired, you're feeling weak, you're feeling tempted to sin are are you programming your brain or is your mind being renewed by the holy spirit and by the scripture to think things like hey this body of sin hey hey it's brought to nothing is that the kind of stuff that you're thinking about i mean a lot of christians who don't act like they're dead to sin they act like they're destined to sin They act like sin is the inevitable reality of my life here on earth. And since I'm going to sin at some point in the future, why even really try to not sin today? Since it's inevitable and we're all going to do it. Now, I keep looking for that. It's inevitable. Christians are just going to keep sinning verse that where it says meditate on these things, right? I keep looking for that verse because people quote it all the time. but But I can't really find it here in the pages of Scripture. I understand the reality that we will not be sinless in this life, but I sure think we could sin a whole lot less in this life if we were thinking we were dead to sin and it had no power over us. That's what, we're, that's what it's teaching us to think. That's what it's telling us to believe. That when you see Jesus dying on the cross, the thought that comes to you is, hey, that's me, I died with him, I'm dead to sin. No longer defined by it, owned by it, controlled by it. And when I'm tempted by it, I can say no to it because it has no power over me anymore. I'm dead to it. That's how we're supposed to be programming our, our thinking. That's how we're supposed to be begging God to teach us to think that way. It says here in uh, verse 6, picking it up, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's why the title of our sermon here this morning is Consider It Done. Yes, it is done, but how do you think about it in your own head? Do you think of it as done? That's the point we're going for here. 
what it says right here in verse 11. You also must consider yourselves. This is a way you have to learn about, to think about yourself in Christ, the life that is defined by faith in Jesus. You think of yourself as dead to sin. Do you believe what the Bible's saying to you right now? Is that really how you're programming yourself to think? Is that the thought that you're going to in your moments of temptation? Yeah, I know this sin used to define me. I know my past is filled with giving into this sin. But in Christ, I'm dead to this sin, and I'm saying no to it today. Wouldn't that be a great way to live? To experience that freedom? It says you've got to consider it done. You've got to consider yourself dead to sin. This is a way that you're going to have to think about it. Jesus has already done it. The power to say no to sin is already there, but you're going to have to consider it that way. You're going to have to take God at his word. Now, I've grown up my entire life going to church. Some of you guys know my dad got saved shortly before I was born, and he was fired up, and he was at church all the time. I mean, he wasn't, we didn't grow up at the Blakey house like Easter, Christmas kind of Christians. We were like, we were like Sunday morning, Wednesday night, like any time the door was open, Friday night, like if the door was open, the Blakeys were going to be there. You could count on us, you know what I mean? And we were there. That's how I grew up. I've lived probably one of the most Christianized lives that you could live in in America today. I went to Christian kindergarten. Anybody else going to Christian school as a little kid? I graduated from a Christian high school where we wore the uniform. We had the patch sewed on, the whole deal. I was the valedictorian of my class. And I don't say that to brag. I say that because there were 10 kids in my class. That's (laughs) That's how we roll in the Christian high school. Although some of those guys were pretty sharp, I will will say that, I will say that. I mean, I went to Christian college where they taught me the Bible. I mean, I, I could, I haven't missed that many Sunday mornings of gathering with God's people in my entire life, okay? I know how Christian people are, and I wish they would act like they were dead to sin in America today. I wish they would just take the Bible at its word and consider themselves dead. They act like this body of sin has been brought to nothing. That's not how I hear people talk about it. And, I, and so I, when I was in college, when I was at that Christian college, they asked me to be the resident assistant of one of the wings there in the dorm. And at this Christian college, to be the RA there in the dorm wasn't just you had to enforce the silly dorm rules. They actually wanted you to disciple people and encourage them to love Jesus Christ and to live for him. And so they were like, hey, here's 24 guys that are going to be on your wing of the dorm. You're their spiritual leader. You go make an impact in their lives. And I was like, okay, what would I say to these guys that could help make a difference really in their life? And at the same time, they told me to do this, and I was thinking about it. They also said that you needed to decorate. I needed to put something up on the walls there in the hall. Now, if you know me at all, uh, interior decoration is not my spiritual gift. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's not my department. And so, uh, so that was a bad idea for them to ask me to figure out the, the decor of the wing. Because what we did is we went and got these long pieces of black fabric, 
and, and this really kind of ghetto-looking stuff, and, and, we, and we put it on the floor, and we had every guy on the wing lie down, and this guy's on the soccer team, so he lied down kicking a soccer ball, and this guy plays video games all day and all night, so he lied down with his keyboard and his mouse, right? And, and this guy, he's a real friendly guy, so he was like waving at somebody, and we had them all lie down on the black fabric, and we took this big white marker, and we outlined their bodies like they were dead corpses on the ground. And we put them up on the walls, and we're like, we're the dead wing, what's up, you know? <laughs> Seriously, that's what we did. That was my idea that I had, right? Because I thought, hey, if there's one thing that I want these guys to know is that if you're in Christ, you're dead to sin. And you need to identify with it. I mean, hey, I'm not saying you should go home today and lie down on the floor and outline each other's dead bodies, but if it's going to help, I'm not saying you shouldn't either, all right? I mean, what is it going to take for you to really identify as someone who has died with Christ? You have to consider yourself this way. You have to cons- It's already done. Can you, can you imagine the, the foolishness of having a to-do list that's already checked off and then going and doing it again? Can you imagine the foolishness of the bill already being paid and then saying, how much do I owe for this one? That's what a lot of Christians are doing. And we're supposed to consider it done. Next time you are tempted to sin, how can you think so that this is the first thought that comes to your mind? I'm dead to this. This has no power over me. I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to live that way. Look what it says in verse 12. This is Paul telling us, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Okay, so let me ask everybody here as a Christian this morning, are you under law or under grace? Which one? Okay, well then it says, because you're under grace, sin has no dominion over you. I hear a lot of people celebrating that we're under grace. Here's the implication that Paul says, if you know God's been good to you, if you know he's poured out undeserved favor in your life, then one of the conclusions that you should be thinking in this present moment is sin has no dominion over me. Sin has no power over me because I'm under the grace of God, not under my own sin anymore. I'm dead to it. We need to be able to say with confidence today and every day that God gives us, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead to it. Go back to Galatians 2 because uh, this one, this one, this middle phrase here, we've looked at two of the phrases. Now we're back to this middle one right here. This one, we got to take a moment to process this. This middle one here. Uh, Hopefully you can get that thought and really believe it, really live it by faith that you have died to sin when Jesus died. But then it says this here, the next verse, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That could be the most anti-American sentence I can think of right there. 
I mean, we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. We live in the, we live in the nation, the United States of America, that started with a declaration of independence. And we've taken that idea of independence to a whole new meeting in our lifetime here in America. I mean, the whole point right now in America is you do you. What America is preaching to our young people, what they're preaching through every possible platform and story is the gospel of self-esteem. Is that you should value yourself. And you should be yourself. And if somebody else tells you to be different than how you want to be, forget that person. Get that negative influence out of your life. You just go and do you. And this verse says, it's no longer you who live. Wow. That is the polar opposite of what we're being told in our nation right now. You, you so died with Jesus, you're so much not you anymore that it's not even your life moving forward. It's not even you who lives. It's now Christ who lives in you. I mean, are we ready for that level of dependence on Jesus? Are we ready for that level of identity where I can't even think of it as my life anymore because it's now Jesus' life in me? I have died to my old life of sin and I no longer live? I mean, you watch how this is playing out in America. We're telling everybody, love themselves, esteem themselves, put yourself in the center of the universe, and, and you watch that as all these things, all these negative consequences in people's lives, people are more depressed than ever before in America. People are more anxious than ever before. I mean, I'm hearing about suicide more connected to people here at our church. I'm hearing about it all the time, more in America than ever I've heard about it in my life. That's what happens when you tell everybody you're the center of the universe. You can't sustain that. That, will not, that story will not end up with a happy ending. There is only one who is the center of the universe. He upholds the universe by the words of his power. His name is Jesus. You want to find life? You have to find Jesus. And you have life when Jesus lives in you. It's no longer I who live. Are you really ready to think that all the way through? It's not my life anymore. It's Jesus' life in me. It's not my time anymore. It's Jesus' time. It's not my money anymore. It's Jesus' money. It's not my house, my car, my stuff. It's Jesus' life in me. Are we really ready to own up to that? That's the identity of a Christian person. It's the life of Christ in you you are in christ and christ is in you that's what it means to be a christian so let's get this the past fact is jesus is not in the tomb that's the past fact of the resurrection jesus is not in the tomb that's what we just celebrated last week the stone was rolled away i mean think about that resurrection power to defeat sin and death and all of the forces of evil in the spiritual realm, Satan and all of his demons, Jesus just comes out of that with the ultimate victory, with the ultimate triumph. The stones rolled away. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Jesus is not in the tomb. You want to know where he is? This is the present faith. Jesus is in you. That's where he is. All of the ultimate power of the universe now lives in you that's what it says right here galatians 2 20 it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me 
The resurrection power, wow, where does he go after his mighty victory over all of his enemies? He goes right to you. Now, I know we think about Jesus in bodily form at the right hand of the Father getting ready to return, but Jesus Christ had no problem saying that that he would be in us, and he said very specifically what that would look like, that he would send his spirit, and the spirit would come and indwell within us and would help us and teach us and guide us into all truth. You have the living God living in you. That's what Galatians 2.20 is telling you. Let me tell you, that's worth losing all of your independence for. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? That's worth losing your identity in this life to gain eternal life, to gain the very life of God in your soul. You have Jesus Christ in you. Okay, so you're starting to see the powerful implications of this verse. So imagine tomorrow morning you're waking up and the first thing you think is how loved you are that Jesus would die for you. The second thing you think is that all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your sin already been paid in full. Then you start thinking about something of this world, some temptation. You say, no, I'm dead to that. And then you start thinking, what is Jesus who's living in me going to do today? I can't wait to find out. That's what it means to be a Christian, to live that way. Turn with me to John 15. Look what Jesus said about being in you. He, he addressed it specifically. He gave us an analogy here of the vine and the branches in John 15. But then in verse 4, he just says it flat out, uh, straightforward. Here's a word of Jesus Christ about how he's going to be in you. And the way it's translated here is abide. It's the Greek word meno. It means to remain. It means to stay. It, it says here, abide in me and I you. John Fifteen four, page 901, abide in me and I in you. Here's Jesus talking to you. I want you to remain in me. I want you to stay in me. I want you to see your whole life as being connected to me. And you're going to remain in me. And guess where I'm going to be, Jesus says. I'm going to be in you. So he uses the analogy that he's this life-giving vine and we're this branch. And if we stay connected to the, to the vine and all of its life-giving power and energy, that life will just go right through us and there will be a bunch of fruit on the end of our branch. That's what he goes on to say. Look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears what? Much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. As Christians, we really do have only one thing. If we think about this one thing, It will lead to everything else we're supposed to do. I just need to abide, to remain, to stay in Jesus. And I need to remember that Jesus is in me. And if I keep that, I'll bear much fruit. I'll do all kinds of things. But if I forget what it's all about and I make it a to-do list and I try to do it in my own willpower and strength, well, apart from Christ, you and I can do what? And we've experienced that, have we not? We've experienced when there's just life flowing through us, and we're just almost like, wow, how is this happening? And then we've experienced trying so hard and feeling like we're getting nowhere. What's the difference? I'm just thinking about being in Christ and how Christ is in me. And when I'm really aware of that and I'm connected to Jesus, that's when the life flows. That's what leads to much fruit. 
Just got to think about Jesus Christ. Got to live by faith in Jesus. Dead to sin, alive in Christ, and Christ is in me. He goes on to say here in verse 7, if you abide in me, to this person who really stays in me, and my words abide in you. So one of the things the scripture says is that we should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. How do you become aware that Jesus is there in you through the power of his Holy Spirit? Well, the word is what reminds you that you're alive in Jesus. The word is what renews your mind and transforms your life and empowers you to live a certain way. So you want to stay connected to Jesus? Get his words of truth. Get this book of Galatians in you. And he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We stay aware that Christ lives in us. If we depend on Jesus as our source of life and we seek him in his word, wow, we're going to glorify God the Father? We're going to bear much fruit in our lives and be a blessing to other people around us? We're going to prove to even the haters and the skeptics that there is really life in Jesus because the life of Jesus is in us. And you have the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, powerfully working in you. Go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Look at how it describes this thought. Very, very simple idea here. Colossians 1, 27. It says there's a mystery from the beginning of human history that God's been working towards this whole time, and, and not everybody has known it. But now even the Gentiles know it. Now anybody can know it. Not just God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews. But this is for all nations, for all peoples, every tribe and every tongue. It says here in Colossians 1.27, this is the mystery of what life is really all about here. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And you can summarize it down to just a few words. The mystery is, which is Christ in you, and Christ in you is the hope of glory. That would be a good thing to write down under Jesus is in you. The hope of glory. You want to know who have, the people who have a happy ending in real life? The people who really get to experience glory. The credits don't roll at the end of it. The lights don't come back up. No, you get to live in the happy ending forever. It's the people who have Christ in you. That's your hope of glory. And this kind of hope is we can't relate to it. There's nothing else in life that, that we put our hope in that does not disappoint us on some level or some time. No, this is a kind of hope, a biblical hope, a kind of hope that only Christians can have, a hope that will never disappoint, a hope that will never put us to shame, a hope that will never let us down, that you will experience the glory of Jesus. And right now in your life, you're receiving grace upon grace. Right now, as you gaze at who Jesus is, as you stay connected in Jesus and he is in you, you're going to grow from glory unto glory. You're going to be transformed into his image. You're going to be conformed to his likeness. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you'll be like Jesus. And then someday at the end of it all, you'll meet him face to face and you will be made like him for all of eternity. And you will never sin again. You will experience the fullness of your salvation. 
not only dead to sin in your spirit, but given a new body, given a new heavens and a new earth where there is no sin. And you will share in the glory of your Lord Jesus Christ. And that eternal glory that you're going to experience someday is in you right now. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. And the life I now live in the flesh, the life I'm living right now in this body, I live by faith. This is really what faith is. Taking all the past facts that I know about Jesus and applying them to this present moment. And he says, I live by faith in the Son of God, and here's what he is so convinced of, who loved me and gave himself for me. We only know a little bit about how Jesus loves us. We only see it dimly by faith right now. But every once in a while, you get a glimpse, you get reminded about how much Jesus really cares about your soul. I had the privilege of officiating a wedding. I don't know if you've ever officiated a wedding. Basically, anybody can do it these days. You just get a license on the internet. I don't know if you've tried it or anybody's asked you to do it. But I have the privilege of officiating. There's no better seat to a wedding than right where I'm standing, right there with them. I, get, I can tell what they're feeling. I got to do a wedding for this young lady here at our church. I saw this young lady repent of her sins and believe in Jesus in the summer of 2011 at this camp that we did. And for eight years, I've watched her life radically change. And she has died with Christ, and she lives with Christ. And the Lord has, has really worked in this young lady's life. And then she introduced him to this guy, and they met right here at our church. And the music changes and everybody stands up, and she starts walking in. And you know what happens to the guy? He starts crying. And everybody can see the guy crying. It's like people aren't even looking at her walking in. They're all like, do you see him? He's crying. I didn't think he would be a crier. <laughs> and there he is, crying. You know why he's crying? Because he loves this young lady. That's how Jesus loves you. He loved you so much that he laid down his life for you. He died for you. You had this debt that you could never repay. He paid it in full. You should live like that. You should live every single day by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, oh, how we need this kind of faith. God, how we need what Galatians 2.20 is saying to us here this morning. And God, we're so used to stories where we hear about them, we know how it ends, and then we move on. Father, I pray that we would live in the truth of the gospel of Jesus every single day. And I pray that here at this church, you will teach us how to live by faith in the Son of God. That people here in this room will know this week that they are dead to sin and they will say no to temptation. That people here in this room this week will meditate on the reality that Christ lives in them and they will experience his power and his love working in their life. God, please forgive us that so often we just act like we have faith and we're familiar with what Jesus did rather than living by faith. 
and enjoying what Jesus did, experiencing what he did. God, we confess that you have done everything that could be done to love us. And yet many days we live like we're still looking for another story. Father, please forgive us. And let us live based on this truth of the gospel. Let us get this word of Christ to dwell in our heart richly. Turn us away from the stories of this world and get us more in the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. Let him define our lives and let us know that we are loved and our sin has been paid in full as we live by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.